Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, we're back into 1 Corinthians. So let's turn there. And we're in chapter 7, and I know before Christmas we went through chapter 6. And, you know, I don't want to necessarily review a lot, but if you remember, if you remember all that time way back then, in chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, Paul was talking about how our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and how Jesus has bought us with his blood and that we are to honor God with our bodies and to flee from sexual immorality, okay? Now we come into chapter 7, which is kind of difficult. And so I struggle with how to teach this tonight because it's just kind of confusing. And so I'm going to help us navigate through chapter 7 because you can get bogged down in what in the world is Paul actually talking about. So really the first thing that we need to understand here is that the cultural context of Corinth is very, very important. What was going on in Corinth as far as its culture, as far as the laws regarding marriage, because this chapter is about marriage and singleness and divorced people and widowed people and people thinking about getting married, all different categories of of life. And so what Paul's going to address are six categories of people that Paul's going to talk about. Now, look at chapter 7, verse 1. This is the first time that Paul is going to address an issue that they had previously talked to him about. Because what does it start with? Chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul is addressing a question they had. We don't know exactly what the question is they had, but we can probably guess. Let's talk about culture for a moment. Let's talk about the history. Corinth was governed by Roman law because it was in the Roman Empire, Roman law and customs governed the way Corinth operated. And there were four types of marriages practiced during that time. Four different ways people looked at marriage. And so I'm going to give you the Latin terminology. You don't don't have to remember the Latin terminology. I'll explain to you what it means. But the first type of marriage was called catuburnium. Catuburnium. This was a slave marriage. Okay, so if a man and a woman slave wanted to be married, they could not officially go to the church and get married by a pastor. They were allowed to live together in what was called a tent companionship. Now, here's the problem. If they're slaves, what could happen? Your slave owner could sell one of the partners in the marriage, and then it would be dissolved. So you may be in love with this person, and you married them, and the slave owner comes and says, up, I'm selling them. So your marriage could be, your wife or husband could be taken off. So technically it wasn't a legal marriage because they were slaves, but the slave owner allowed them to live together as a married couple in what was called this tent companionship. Okay, so it was, now this is very important because 50% of Corinth were slaves. In the Roman Empire, almost 50% of the population were slaves. So, And we think about slaves, guys. Let's just talk about slavery for a moment. When we think about slavery, what do we think about? 
Civil War type slavery. Slavery was a lot different back in that ancient culture. Um, they didn't get beaten per se. A slave might be like a household servant. A slave may be your accountant. A slave may be the teacher of your children. It was just you did not have property and you did not have money. You were hired out by a person that was not hired out, but you were bought and you were usually branded as a slave. But you could live in the quarters of the master's house. You could interact with their family. Um, sometimes you would teach the children. So it wasn't like a Civil War type slavery. But the master had the prerogative if he wanted to sell you for a better servant, he could. Okay? So that's the first type of marriage that was around during that time. The other type of marriage was called usus. This was a form of common law marriage that recognized a couple to be a husband and wife after they'd lived together for at least a year. So they practiced cohabitation back then like they do in our culture of living together without officially being married. And so the government said, well, if you've lived together for longer than a year, I guess you're common law marriage. Okay, so they had that type of, of, of marriage. The other type was called coemptio and manum. This is where a father would sell his daughter to a prospective husband in an arranged marriage. So you may have no control over who you're getting married to because this is what your dad and mom arranged and you would be sold to a husband. So you may be married to a guy that you really don't like, but your dad does because of your advancement in culture, okay? Well, it depends on your station in life. Um, if you were rich and you were not a slave, you could do that. Probably the most common was the contubernium because almost everybody was slaves. The one that we're probably the most familiar with in our culture was the fourth kind called conferatio. Now, this was solely for the noble class. And this is what the modern marriage ceremony is based upon. The, 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 the noble class would have a maid of honor, a best man. They would exchange vows. There would be a bridal veil. They would exchange rings. There would be a bridal bouquet and there'd be a wedding cake. But that was only reserved for the nobility. So not very many people did that type of, of marriage. Okay, So you could probably think, if Paul's writing back to the Corinthians, do you think just by probability that his congregation probably fell in any of those categories of marriage? Probably the most of them being slaves. So the big question comes is this. Okay, now that I've been saved by grace, now that I've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do I do? Do I stay married? Do I divorce? Do I think about marriage? How do I deal with this whole issue of marriage in a culture where it's confusing and there's slavery and there's all these different types of things? How? So they probably wrote to Paul and said, explain to us this whole marriage thing. And that's why Paul starts out with chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters which you wrote. I'm going to answer your question in chapter 7. He's going to answer some other questions as we go through 1 Corinthians. But it's the issue of marriage and divorce and singleness and engagement and widows and this whole issue. How do we deal with this whole marriage issue um, in this culture? Now, before we dive into this passage, Paul is going to address six categories of people. He's going to cover the gamut. You want my answer on marriage? Let me give you. There's six categories, and he, he kind of gets into depth in these. The first category are those who have been called and gifted to remain single and celibate for life. There is a calling on a certain person 
to remain single for life and to be celibate, to never have sex and to be single. That's a calling and a gifting. Paul addresses that. Then he uses this generic term, the unmarried. And most scholars believe that he's talking about persons who have been married before but are now single divorcees. Okay, so like, a, so like you're divorced, but you're, you haven't remarried. You're a single divorced person. Okay? Then he's going to address widows and widowers, people who your spouse has died. Okay, a widow or a widower. Then he's going to address a married couple where both spouses are Christians where the husband and wife are both Christians. Then he's going to address a married couple where one spouse is a believer and the other is an unbeliever. How do you deal with that? Being unequally yoked, how do you deal with one of your spouses is is saved and one's not? How do do you deal with that? And then the last group he's going to talk about are what he calls the virgins, those who've never been married or engaged couples. You confused already (laughs) with these six categories of people? Yes, hopefully. He calls them virgins. Assuming, uh, when he calls them virgins, he's assuming that they are never been married, couples who are thinking about getting married but haven't been called to singleness. They're not widowers. They're not divorced. They're not married yet, but they're not called to singleness. So Mary and Joseph. Yes, a betrothed, a betrothed couple. And again, there were Jews and Gentiles in Corinth too. So some came out of a Jewish background. Some came out of a Roman background. So let's just dive in and find out. Again, guys, I'm going to warn you, this this gets kind of confusing. So I'm going to try to help us navigate through this. Because if you go verse by verse through the Bible and you get to a chapter that you don't like to preach, you can't just skip over it. Because you'd be like, why did you skip over that? Because he's a wimp and he didn't want to deal with it. So I'm not going to wimp out on you tonight. We're going to deal with it. So chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, he's going to talk about celibacy and singleness. So let's just... Let's just read chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each each woman her own husband. Okay, what Paul is saying here is it's good for a man to be single. Single and celibate. He says it's good. Do you guys, it's not very common in our culture for a person to have a calling to singleness. Because what do we elevate in our culture? Marriage, okay? But if God has called you to be single for your life, are you any less of a citizen in God's kingdom? Are you like a second class citizen? No, Paul's saying, no, it's, it's a good thing. There is a special calling, I think, and a gifting for a person to remain single and celibate for their entire life. It's, it's a calling to singleness. But Paul gives a warning. What does he say there in verse 2? But we live in a sex-crazed culture just like they lived. Corinth is a sex-crazed culture. And if you can't control your sex, if you can't control your passion, you better get married. Because if you're going to remain single your entire life, that means you have to remain celibate. There's a, when, you, when God calls you to singleness, that means you can't just be sleeping around with everybody. You've got to remain celibate. And so Paul says, you may want to think twice about the calling to be single because if you don't have the self-control to control your sexuality, you may need to go ahead and just get married. Okay? You're laughing, Paul. Are you okay? Well, I didn't mean it. Well, 
I didn't mean to say it like that. But just go ahead and get married. No. So, but I, what I want to, yeah, what I want to, what I want to elevate here, though, is that there is a calling to singleness. God has specifically called, and Paul's going to address it later on, saying single people actually have more freedom in the kingdom to be able to do ministry because they're not tied down to marriage. A lot of missionary women were single, like Lottie Moon, the greatest missionary to China that we have. You know the story behind Lottie Moon? Her, she was engaged to a man that was a professor at Southern Seminary, where I go to seminary, back in the 1800s. He became a heretic, and she said, I can't marry you because you're a heretic. So she remained single the rest of her life and was a missionary to China. But she almost married him, but theology got in the way, and he became kind of wonky in his beliefs. And she said, I can't marry you. And so anyway, but singleness, all right? Now, next, we got to be real careful as we navigate through this, especially with married couples in the room. Number, f- number seven. I mean, chapter number seven. Verses three through five, okay? (laughs) Sexual responsibility within marriage. Okay, so let's, let's read this. Maybe you've never read this before in your life, but it's interesting stuff. Here we go. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, there may have been somebody, this like group in Corinth, that were super spiritual saying, we are so super spiritual that in the marriage relationship, we don't have sex. Because we're so spiritual. And Paul's saying, that's wrong. It's wrong. He says, don't deprive each other of... Well, let me just put what I wrote down here. Okay, we're all adults. Paul lays down as a duty within marriage that each partner should seek to satisfy the other because they are intricately woven together as one flesh and their bodies belong to each other. What does he say? The woman's body belongs to the man. The man belongs to the woman. You guys... You should not deprive each other of sexual um, relationships. Stop depriving. But he gives a command there. What does he say? What's the exception? He says in verse 5, except if you come to an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So what he's saying is, come on in, Nicole. What he's saying is, is that there may be periods in the life of a couple where one of the couple, one of the members of the couple may want to go into a period of intense prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord, and they may say to the other couple, the other member, their, their spouse, listen, honey, I'm going into a series of intense prayer. Can we agree not to have sex for a week? And the both couples come and say, okay, we agree upon it. But Paul says, don't make it too long. Like, don't make it a month. Because if, if you make it a month, what does he say? Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If... It goes on too long without, this is really uncomfortable, but if, if, if you go too long, if you go too long without sex in a marriage, how can that be a temptation? One of the partners who wants sex may decide to go find it somewhere else or to engage in pornography or, or to you know, have an affair or whatever. And so Paul says, really, a married couple should enjoy each other's sexuality. Now, let me give a word of warning here, okay? Because the men are thinking, ah, I've got a verse. 
I've got a verse. Let me give a word of warning here to the men that think I've got a verse. This passage can be abused by husbands especially to make their wives, quote, perform on command and manipulate them and guilt them into sexual intercourse. Okay, this is not a text for you to go to your wife and say, if you're not having sex with me, then you need to step up to the plate and we need to, I mean, you know what I'm saying? A husband can't just throw this as a bully club at his wife and, and make her, you know, use it as a way to manipulate her. Because what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5? We've got to balance this with Paul, what Paul says in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The rest of the scripture is not on there. It says this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I, I wish it was up on the screen, because the, the scripture says, nourishes and cherishes his wife. He nourishes her and he cherishes her. The word nourish there really means to protect, like the physical protection of a husband of his wife. Cherish there is the emotional protection the emotional intimacy so a a husband has a high calling to love his wife the way christ loved the church are you loving your wife the way christ loved the church when you use this passage in first corinthians to guilt her into having sex when she may not feel like it okay so paul does say freedom within marriage enjoy each other it's what god created you for within the confines of marriage but be careful that you don't go long periods of time without that because it gives Satan a foothold into the, into the marriage relationship to where there's, there's an issue of lack of self-control. Paul address, addresses the issue of self-control here that really is, let's just talk about this, is self-control an issue in our lives or lack of self-control an issue? So Paul says to the single people, you better be sure that God's called you to singleness because if you can't control yourself you better get married because you can't be single and be sleeping around that's not what singleness is about it's, it's a call to singleness and celibacy within a marriage relationship you need to lovingly try to meet each other's needs um, without going long periods of time because it's going to open up to temptation okay all right let's keep going this is where he talks about he goes back to celibacy for a moment here I think there's a slide missing. I think there's some slides missing here. Um, six through so- seven, six through seven. Yeah, there's a slide missing. But let's just look at chapter seven, six through seven. Six through seven. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul's saying, I'm not making this as a command. I'm not, I'm not commanding everybody to be single. I can't do that. Paul, Paul's realistic. I can't command everybody to be single. But he says, I wish that everybody was like me. Now, Paul was single. Most scholars believe he was probably a widower, that his wife had died. So Paul's saying, I'm not going to command this, but it's probably, I wish all of you were single like me. But at the end of the day, it's a gift. Each one has his own gift from God. If God has gifted you with a wife or a husband, that's where you need to be. If God has gifted you to be single, that's where you need to be. So celibacy really here, I believe, is a gift. 
It's a special gift that God gives to people. It's a special gift and a special calling that God gives. Okay. Now, guidelines for marriage. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Guidelines for marriage. Paul now moves from addressing the issue of singleness and married to another category. So he's going to give two, two categories here. So the first category he gives here is guidelines. Am I, I think she put things out of order here. Um, it should be guidelines. All right, let's just move to the next slide here. He now gives two other categories. Okay, I'm confused because the slides are different than what I've got here. It's different from the text. So let's just read verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and widows. So there's two other categories, right? Who are the two categories he's talking about now? Unmarried and widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, two categories, the unmarried and the widows. Who were the unmarried? Again, those who were probably previously married are not widows, are now single, they're not virgins, it's a divorced person, okay? Now, we need to be careful because Paul's going to lay down some other stipulations later on for divorce and remarriage and all that good stuff. But he says, it's probably good for you to remain single, but if you can't exercise self-control, if you're going to burn with passion, you need to get married. And he says the same thing about widows. Widows are the same thing. Okay, so what are the categories so far? People called to be single, the unmarried, divorced single people, and widows. Okay, now he's going to dive into guidelines for Christians. Okay, but in verses 10 through 11, it's guidelines for Christians married to other Christians. Okay, where both partners are believers. So what does he say? To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, so what's Paul saying about married couples? They should not divorce. Okay. Now, let me just stop here because I know a lot of people in our church have experienced a divorce. Is divorce the unforgivable sin? No. Are you going to go to hell if you've been divorced? No. It covers, the blood of Christ covers divorce just like it covers any other sin. But on the flip side, does God hate divorce? Does divorce destroy families? Is it a painful experience? Yes. Okay. God hates divorce, and married Christians should never divorce except for extreme circumstances. And we're going to talk about that here tonight. What are the circumstances for divorce? But let's look at Malachi 2, 14 through 16. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not what? Why does he not listen to our prayers? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant did not he make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one god seeking godly offspring so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of 
your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now the ESV says the Lord covers his garment with violence. I think the NIV says the Lord hates divorce. Either way you look at it, what is God saying here? You need to be faithful to the covenant wife or husband that you married and you should not divorce. And Paul says here, the wife should not separate. Now that word separate, when we think of separate, he's not talking about a legal separation like in our culture. He's actually saying you should not leave or divorce and husbands should not divorce their wives. Now, let's see what Jesus says about divorce, okay? Paul mentions it here. What does Paul flat out say? They should, he says this, you should not get divorced. If you get divorced, what should happen? You should stay unmarried or be reconciled back to your spouse, okay? Which is the ideal. What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except, now what does except mean? There's an exception clause, right? Does Jesus give an exception clause? Except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, let's just go back to Matthew 19. 4 through 9, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What? Therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, so what is the exception that Jesus gives that allows a person to possibly divorce? What's the exception? Sexual immorality. Now, what does that mean? Because this gets fuzzy. Does it mean if your husband looks at pornography once, you should divorce him? Is that sexual immorality? Does it mean that if your husband has a continuous affair for 15 years with another woman, that you should divorce him? Here's my counsel to people. I don't think that you should ever automatically think, I'm going to divorce him or I'm going to divorce her. I think that, yes, Jesus gives permission for there to be a divorce if there's sexual immorality, but I think it should be a last resort. I think there should be counseling. I think there should be intervention. I think the church should get involved in doing some church discipline. If one of the members was being unfaithful to the other and they're both members or both Christians, I think there should be a lot of intervention before it gets to that. Okay, So we, we can't say that Jesus is against divorce because Jesus clearly teaches that the only stipulation for divorce is sexual unfaithfulness, and even then it should be a last resort. Now, you can be loose on how you define sexual immorality. I mean, if a wife is in a situation where she really doesn't want to be married to her husband and, he catches, and she catches him with pornography once, she could come to her pastor and say, should I get married because he looked at pornography? And he, it's sexual immorality. And what would I say to her probably? 
Well, technically maybe yes, but is that, is that really what Jesus was getting at? Because what's the ultimate issue? Jesus says they are one flesh, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So ultimately, you want to do everything you can to protect the one flesh union of that marriage. And if, it's, if, if, there's, if you've tried counseling and you've tried everything and, 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 there, and there's you know, last-ditch efforts to try to salvage it and it's just not going to happen, it's going to fall apart, I think Jesus gives permission to do that as a last resort. So I would never counsel anybody to get a divorce. I would counsel them to get counseling and long-term counseling and, 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 to, and to work it out. But I also know that Jesus gives an exception clause. Okay? Now... What happens to a married person who's married to an unbel- a Christian who's married to an unbeliever? What happens if you're unequally yoked? So if, let's say, for example, in Corinth, both of you were pagans, and Paul comes to town and preaches the gospel, and one of you gets saved and one of you doesn't, should you still, should you still stay married? Or should you divorce the guy because he's a chump, and you're a Christian now and he's not? I mean, what is Paul saying there? Okay. So Paul's going to give guidelines here for Christians married to unbelievers who want to stay married. Okay, so let's, let's look at that, verses 12 through 14. Again, I told you guys it's kind of confusing, all these different categories. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, I would say it goes both ways if you're a husband and, you know, or your wife and your husband's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay, let's talk about this. What Paul is saying here is really a Christian... These are out of order. Um, the bottom should go first. A Christian spouse should remain married to their unbelieving spouse because of the ordinance of marriage. Okay? Just because your spouse is an unbeliever doesn't give you permission just to go out and say, okay, you're not a believer, so I'm going to divorce you. If, if, if there's a consent to stay married, whereas, like, you know, you become a Christian and they don't, but you still want to be married... Paul says you should stay married. There's no reason why you should divorce because they want to stay married to you. Does that make sense? But then he says this, the partner's made holy because of you as a Christian. Now, what does that not mean? Does that mean they automatically become a Christian because you're a Christian? It can't mean that based upon all the other passages we've seen in the Bible that teach grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. What I think Paul is saying there is, is that when you are a Christian, let me just put it this way. Is a family with one Christian probably more godly and be a better environment for kids than a family with both non-Christians? Which is a better environment? Probably at least one Christian, right? So I think what Paul's saying is that at least one of you is a Christian. It's going to be a godly influence on the kids, and it's going to, it's going to sanctify your household in the sense that there's probably a better probability that you, you'll influence your husband and that there will be some godly things going on, the, you know, on in the house versus a family where both both people are not believers. Does that make sense? Yes, Sean. Why does, it, why does he make the disclaimer, I'm saying you should not remarry? Why does he say that? Well, it's not, 
it's not as if Paul, obviously this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so um, there's some debate as far as why Paul does that. Because sometimes he says, this is the Lord saying it, not me. And if we take it as inspired, excuse me, if we take it as inspired text, which has been delivered to us, then we have to assume that it is from the Lord, even though Paul says, it's just my opinion. That's my best answer. I, I, I don't know why, Shauna. I really don't. Okay? Sean, is there any justification to the theory that Paul was in this situation? That when he became a Christian, the various he was married and his wife, mm-hmm. because being in the Sanhedrin, mm-hmm. he had to have been married. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we don't know. We don't have any Bible verse that says what happened to Paul's wife. So there's two options. One is she died and he was a widow. The other is that she said, forget you, you lunatic. I'm leaving you. And she deserted him as an unbeliever. And he went on with his call. And and she probably filed divorce proceedings and and she divorced him. We really don't know. But Paul addresses that issue next. Okay. But yeah. What I'm saying is that could that give justification for why he would say, "I say this," basically on experience. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Himself. Could be. I don't. Know. I have another theory. Yes. My theory is in, in verse ten he says, "But to the married I give the instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband." Um, isn't that the section where it's talking about two Christians in the period? Mm-hmm. The one over here where he says, but the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any, well, no, I guess that's, never mind, because it says if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever. Um, but I'm wondering if maybe in the Old Testament it's a little more clear cut for you have two people who believe. Right. Covenant, right. And you don't have a whole lot of cases of one in the covenant and one not. Right. Could be. And so he may be saying, this is my opinion based on what I know. Yeah, I mean, I don't want us to get down the slippery slope of saying we can pick and choose what's Paul's opinion and what's not. Um, because then you go down to the fact that, well, then what's his opinion and what's not? You can pick and choose what parts of the Bible. Well, I think but I you, think, yeah. I think it's what you said earlier. I think he's saying it's my opinion, but God is saying, and I'm putting my stamp of yeah. approval because now it's in the Bible. Yeah, that, that's, that could be. Because when he's writing this, he could be saying, this is my opinion, and then when it's, when it's inscripturated or canonized, it is authorized as the, the, the Word of God. Could it be, too, it's like even as we're looking at this, there's some things that are a little fuzzy. I mean, even with Jesus, you know, what is sexual immorality? It's not, this is sexual immorality in this situation. Right. So maybe Paul and his, his own, he's yeah. also interpreting well, let me, if you guys hold on, there's four views on divorce we're going to look at in just a moment that evangelical Christians all hold to. So even within the evangelical world, there's four camps. So you know when there's four camps, it's not clear-cut, just like end times. When there's three or four end times versions, you know it's, there's a little bit of mystery there. Yes, Candace. Um, my Bible actually clarifies it a little bit where it says, I, not the Lord, Paul knows the oral tradition of Jesus' sayings on divorce that were later written down in the Gospels. But he is not aware that Jesus ever spoke specifically to a situation in which one spouse becomes a Christian. 
and the other remains unconverted. He carefully distinguishes, therefore, between the written words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels hmm. and Paul's own understanding That's good. of how Jesus' teaching would apply to this new situation. That's good. That's a good explanation. Who, whose study Bible is that? It's the it? ESV study Bible. Oh, ESV. Okay, good job on ESV study Bible. Yeah, that's that's probably a good explanation. Yeah, that, that helps. That helps a lot, yeah. Yeah. Because Jesus was addressing a Jewish culture where it probably wouldn't have been an issue, they would bo- there would have been no issue of it was a, not an unreached people group like Corinth where you go in and you have these were people that had they, that were Jewish both were believers and, and that kind of goes back to your issue too Cindy okay let's look at fifteen and sixteen this is guidelines for Christians married to unbelievers who want to leave them or desert them okay so you're unequally yoked and one of the partners says I don't want to be in the marriage anymore I want to leave so this is the next category okay so let's look at verses fifteen and sixteen. But if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here's what Paul says. If an unbeliever, a non-Christian, wants a divorce and begin the divorce proceedings, I believe that the Christian spouse should seek every measure they can to salvage the marriage. Key there, okay? But if the unbeliever proceeds to divorce and basically dissolves the marriage and abandons the family, the believing spouse is free to accept the divorce. Okay? Now, let me give some nuances there. The believing member of the party, I don't think, should be the one to file the divorce. I think it's incumbent upon the unbeliever to do that because they're actually the one that's abandoning so if the unbeliever abandons and says, I want out, I'm abandoning you, I'm dissolving you, the believing spouse should say, let's get counseling, let's try, let's go to our pastor, let's do whatever we can. And if they've tried every effort, then let the onus be upon the unbeliever to do the divorce. Now, that doesn't mean the woman can't separate or can't you know, move out, but I think that ultimately you want to put the onus on the unbeliever to do the actual divorce. Then you can accept it at that point. But make them, make them do the dirty work. I guess. Make them pay. It's kind of my, my thought on that. So, when you take Paul and you take Jesus, you've got two conditions under which a divorce may happen. Biblically. When one of the spouses commits sins that involve sexual contact with another person, again, I don't think... I don't think... Porn, to me personally, I know pornography is a sin, and I know pornography is dangerous, and I know pornography ruins families, but I don't know, me personally, I don't know if I would, if a guy has only done pornography, but he's never acted out and had physical sex with another person, I don't know if that would categorize in my mind as, as, as sexual immorality in the sense that's divorce worthy, but that's just me. There's a difference of opinion. And then the other stipulation is when an unbelieving spouse abandons a marriage. Those are the two stipulations biblically that you've got for divorce. Now, it's not required, and it's not encouraged. So I think that, again, I would always err on the side of salvaging the marriage at all costs. But if for some reason, it cannot be under those two conditions. I think Christians are free, because Paul says you're not to be enslaved. You're free to to accept the divorce. Now, let's look at four major t- positions on divorce within evangelical Christianity because there's, there's this end of the spectrum and there's this end of the spectrum. 
Okay, here's the first view. This is the majority view. This is the view that's stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the view of John MacArthur. This is the view of D.A. Carson. This is the view of John Stott. This is the pretty modern, the most widely held view. Okay, here's the first view. Divorce and remarriage for the innocent party of a spouse's adultery, sexual immorality, and of an unbelieving spouse's desertion. So what this view says is that you have permission. If, you've been, if you're the innocent party and you've been sinned against sexually or you've been abandoned, you're free to get a divorce. You can, those are the two stipulations. Sexual immorality and abandonment give you permission to get a divorce. Okay, that, that, That's view number one. That's the majority view. Here's view number two. Divorce is permitted for adultery, but not remarriage for both adultery and spousal desertion by an unbeliever. So this view says, yes, you can get a divorce if they've sinned against you sexually and they've abandoned you, but you cannot get remarried. Because if you remarry, you've committed adultery, as Jesus said. So basically, you can divorce, but you can never get remarried. Or you have to reconcile back with the original partner that you were married with. That's the other view. You can get divorced on those two cases, but you can't remarry. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the other view. Now, here's another view. This is John Piper's view. It's a very extreme view, but this is John Piper's view. Neither divorce nor remarriage in the case of adultery. And no remarriage in the case of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. This is the most extreme view. Basically, what this view says is that if somebody has committed sexual immorality, you do not have permission to get divorced. And you don't have permission to get remarried. And you don't have permission to get remarried in case of abandonment. So basically, if, if somebody divorces you, you have, you have no option to get remarried. You've got to remain un, unmarried the rest of your life. Okay? And then the other view, again, I told you it gets confusing. No divorce or remarriage for adultery, but divorce and remarriage in the case of desertion by an unbeliever. So it kind of splits the two out. So if, it's there, if there's adultery involved, you cannot get divorced and you cannot get remarried. But if they've abandoned you, you can divorce and you can remarry. Confused enough? Those are the four views. Um, Obviously, I think that our church leans more towards the first view. Um, but I know there's some people in our church that lean toward the second view. Um, I think you have it all over the gamut. Um, I usually use a lot of caution when a couple comes to me and wants to get married that's been divorced. And I'll ask those questions. You know, what was the nature of the divorce? Was it biblical? Um, you know, my husband was having a major affair on me for years, and we tried to work it out and have counseling, and he did not want to reconcile. He went off with this other woman, and he basically abandoned me and committed sexual immorality. And, um, and so I was, I was basically held out to dry, and I'm, I'm the victim here, okay? If, if a woman like that comes to me, and, and that was her divorce, and the guy she's marrying maybe has never been married before, or maybe the divorce was similar, you know, I may may consider talking with them and doing premarital counseling. So um, I've done the gamut. I've, I've counseled couples. I've done premarital counseling with couples, but not chosen not to marry them. I won't ever deny doing premarital counseling with couples because I believe it's an opportunity to share the gospel, but I may decide not to marry them 
Because for me to marry a couple means I have to stand before the church and before God to sanction what I believe they're doing. And sometimes I can't do that. But what I can do is I can counsel them on what the Bible says about a married couple and do premarital counseling and maybe let somebody else marry them. So any questions on that before we move on to Paul's next topic? I knew somebody was going to ask that. (laughs) Spousal abuse. Um, The Bible doesn't address that, and that's why it gets hard. (laughs) Because I have some, I've had some women come and they say verbal abuse. Well, how do you define verbal abuse? Well, no, I'm not saying. (laughs) Do we need to have some marriage counseling over here, guys? No, no. Here's, here's my, here's, no, that's a, that's a legitimate question, Larry. And here, here's my counsel. Um, Mm-hmm. Well, here's the point. Number one, if you as a wife, we just assume there, there's also husband abuse where wives beat up on husbands, but that's not as, com- that's not as common. But if one, of the sp- if one of the spouses is their life is threatened and the children's life is threatened, I think that the church should step in and take every measure to protect the family whether that's taking them to help for abused partners or getting them out of there. Now, that doesn't mean she has to divorce him, but she can legally separate. Okay. If the guy, here's where a lot of churches fail. If the guy that's beating her is a church member, he should be disciplined by the church and brought before the church for church discipline and kicked out, like through the process of church discipline, and to publicly discipline him so that it shows that we as a church don't condone what he's doing. Now, a lot of times we find that, what if he's, not, what if he's a non-believer? So here's what I counsel, and I would say at all costs, do not pursue a divorce, but pursue a legal separation and get yourself safe, and let's try to see if we can work on this guy and and, require him to go to anger management and require him. And then basically it comes to a point where my interpretation, I may be wrong on this, and maybe people might think I'm a little bit more liberal on this than I should be. My interpretation is, is that if he gets to the point where he's beating her incessantly he's acting like a non-believer and he has no desire to want to save the marriage so in a sense he's abandoning her and he's deserting them by the way he's treating them so i believe that there's permission there for the husband for the wife to to divorce but i again make him do it so that you don't do the proceeding because i think at that point he's acting like an unbeliever and he's abandoning the family yeah. There's two things about this. One is that the, uh, the spousal abuse, even the term, is a modern construct. You didn't find that in the Old Testament. I mean, even right. women were chattel. They weren't. Yeah, they weren't they, even. They yeah. Weren't. And, and then the other thing is the fact that we've encountered this where people, they almost use this to say they want out. Right. So they spiritually yeah. say, here it is, well. He yelled at me, so right. because of that, yeah. then it's spousal abuse, so it's okay. Yeah, and that's where you have to be real careful because I had a woman come in. Christianity Today about seven years ago had a big article on divorce, and it was very controversial because the guy came out and said, all these things we've thought about are wrong. You can pretty much divorce for any reason. <laughs> that if, like, if you don't, if you got fat or you didn't like it. So this woman comes into me. <laughs> 
or whatever, you don't like his cooking. So this woman who wanted to divorce her husband comes into my office and plops the Christianity down and says, I'm going to get a divorce because this magazine says I can do it. And I said, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. What is he saying? And so I sat there and read it, and I said, this is not biblical. Well, it says it in Christianity Today. And so she was convinced that because it was in Christianity Today magazine that he was doing, and I said, I said okay, is he beating you? No. Is he verbally abusing you? No. Is he having an affair? No. Is he in steeped in, in pornography? Well, a little bit, which is pretty common with most men, um, statistics-wise. And I said, so really, there's no real reason for you to want to divorce him. Why do you want to divorce him? I'm just not in love with him anymore. I just feel like we're drifting apart, and we're moving apart, and we're not, we're not compatible anymore. So she already had in her mind, I want out of this, and she was finding an excuse in a magazine that was Christian to give her an excuse to get out of it. And so I had to walk her through biblically, and she elected to, she doesn't come to this church anymore, and I, I think they may have even gotten a divorce, and I think she even had an affair on him. Um, and all this stuff happened, but it's interesting how people will find loopholes to justify divorce, and especially an elastic term like verbal abuse. Because I have a lot of times women come in and say, well, he's abusing me. Well, what do you mean by that? Is he like physically beating you? No, he's mentally abusing me. Well, what does that mean? Well, we just don't get along. We, he's driving me nuts. Well, come on. I drive Don nuts all the time, and am I verbally abused? I mean, so I think that people use that as a scapegoat to, you know, they come in and they throw the abuse card down. He's abusing me, and I have to, like, ask the question, okay, do you have marks? Is he beating you up? Do we need to get you help the abuse card? Well, no. Well, is it mental abuse? Well, no. I just, and usually when you pin it down, it's, we're just not compatible and we just don't love each other anymore. And that's, but they use the term. Yeah, so anyway, good point. All right, let's keep moving. Y'all, you ready? Verse 7, I mean, chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Paul is going to shift gears here. He kind of does a little, um, like, what, what do you want to call it? An intermission here where he takes a detour and basically says, Paul calls us three times here to live as you've been called. So let's read 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. It's the first time Paul says it. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at this time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. There's the second time he says it. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with the price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There's the third time he says it. Three times here. Paul says these instructions, what does he say? Christians should willingly accept the situation to which God has placed them and be content to serve Him there. Now, 50% of the population were slaves. That's why Paul addresses slavery. That's why Paul addresses circumcision. Two big issues. Like, for example, if you were a Jew when you became saved... Don't worry about the fact that you were circumcised. Just deal with it. Live that way. If you were not circumcised when you were saved, don't try to become a Jew and be circumcised. Just deal with it. If you were a 
slave when you became a Christian, be a slave. If you were not a slave, then live as a free person. And Paul says if you have an opportunity to, to get freedom from slavery, avail yourself to it. So Paul here is not condoning slavery by giving an example. He's not saying, oh, yeah, we should just condone slavery. He's just realistic saying 50% of my church is probably in slavery when they were called and especially in Corinth, so he had to address their context and say, really, you need to live in the situation that God has placed you. Don't try to be something that you're not and be content. Now, let's talk about contentment for a moment. Are we content with where God has placed us? Or do we think the grass is greener other places? Three times Paul says, you need to be content. I'm paraphrasing. You need to be content where God has called you. He's called you, stay there. But I don't like my job. Deal with it. I don't like my husband. Deal with it. I don't like my children. Deal with it. And I'm kind of being facetious. I'm sure Paul probably would say deal with it. But let's talk about slaves for a moment because Paul does address slaves. He doesn't condone slavery, but he's realistic knowing that 50% of the population was slaves. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, he talks about bond servants or slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service when their eyes are on you and they're watching you as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he's free. Then he also addresses masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Okay? So he's encouraging them to live as they are called. Now, what does he say down there in verse, um, let's see here, verse 23. You were bought with the price. Do not become slaves of men. Ultimately, I mean, if they're slaves, they're slaves of men, right? In the sense of technically, legally. But what's he really saying there? If you're a Christian, who's the only master you serve? Ultimately, it's Jesus because he bought you at a price. And so you are to live your life in the fear of the Lord, not enslaved to men. Now, let's talk about us who aren't slaves. How can we as Christians live enslaved to men? Yeah, people pleaser. You're more concerned with what people think of you than what Jesus thinks of you. You live in fear of what... There's a really good book you should read. It's called When, when People Are Big and God Is Small dealing with codependency and, and issues like that. And it, it's, a whole, it's a whole theology of fear of man. What is the fear of man? You live in fear of man as opposed to fearing God. And it talks about what it means to truly fear God. And so I think a lot of us can sometimes fear men, fear people, what people think of us, as opposed to what God thinks of us. Okay? Well, that was more of like an Old Testament type of thing. Um, but yeah, when Paul uses the term bondservant, he's basically saying he's, he's a slave to Christ. He's, a, he's committed himself totally to Jesus. But that it's, a, it's, it's a slave because you've committed, not because you're automatically a slave. Right, you've made the choice to... You've made a choice to, quote-unquote, enslave yourself to Christ yeah. or attach yourself to Christ. It wasn't like... It was involuntarily 
you know, you've made that you've made that choice. Okay, let's go to the last category, twenty-five through forty. He's going to address the virgins. Uh, I think Paul's going back to the issue of singleness in marriage, and he's going to address the final category. Virgins have never been married single people who are engaged to be married. Okay, so who's he talked about so far? Those who've called to be single and celibate their entire life. Those who are divorced but are single. Those who are widowed. Those who are married that are living, both of you as Christians. Those of you who are married but one of your partners is not a Christian and you, can, you, should, li- you should stay together. But if one of them wants to abandon, they can abandon. And finally he gets to the category of like the young, younger people that probably have, you know, they haven't been widowed. They haven't been divorced. They're, they're going to get married. They're engaged, betrothed. They're the, um, this next group of people that are thinking about getting married. So let's talk about what Paul says here, verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Now concerning the betrothed, some translations say virgins. Do your translations say virgins or betrothed or virgins? Okay, yeah. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. That's good because all of us who've married would be sinners. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. Paul's being a little tongue-in-cheek there at the end. So, what's he talking about here? He says, if you're single, you're not going to have a lot of the struggles that a married couple has. Like, for example, what, if you're a single person, what do you, you live for, hopefully, Christ in yourself. You're not encumbered with children. You're not encumbered with the spouse. You can do ministry. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to being a single person. He also says, if you're married, you're going to have more heartache. Now, those of us who are married, would you agree with that? Maybe the single people are thinking like, you guys, I mean, you don't, you don't know how hard it is to be single. And married people are like, you don't know how hard it is to be married. So the question is, both, I think, have their own challenges. Both have their own challenges. Both have their own struggles. I think Paul's really fighting here for, he's really trying to lay down the gauntlet of, I really want you to be single. But if you can't control yourself again, go ahead and be married. But then it's interesting. Paul says in verse 28, 
I mean, I'm sorry, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live, live as though they had none. So does that mean that I'm supposed to just like act like Dawn's not my wife anymore? I'm just going to focus so much on Jesus that she's not in the picture anymore. Live as though she's not my wife. Is that what Paul's saying there? Can it be? He can't. When Paul says to act like we're not married, he's not saying that we throw out marriage responsibilities because he spent all this time discussing it and he's addressing it in Ephesians 5. I think the point he's making, and this is something I think that can creep in, is that sometimes we can make an idol out of our spouse or our family and fail to serve the Christ faithfully. We can use our marriage or family as an excuse for disobedience. I'm not going to serve the Lord because my family comes first. Now, obviously, your family should be important, but should your family ever come in the place of service to Christ? No, but sometimes you can look at your marriage and your spouse and say, I'm not going to do that because this is really more important to me. And that's a balance. I mean, obviously, it's a balance. But I think sometimes people may err on the side of, I'm not going to get involved in church life or I'm not going to serve here. I'm not going to be committed here because it takes away from my family time. Let me, let me just throw out a theological bombshell that you may get really mad at me. In heaven... Who's going to be your family? Your immediate family or the church? The church. So in this earthly life, if you put your earthly family above your spiritually family, again, I'm saying there's a balance there. Don't go, don't go away here saying I'm saying don't take care of your families. But I'm saying some, I've seen some families idolize their families and focus on their family so much that they don't serve Christ when they should be. Does that, does that make sense? So there's, there's a balance there, okay? Now, in verses um, 39 and 40, he's giving, he gives permission for a widow to remarry. So there's no issue with a widow remarrying. What's the only stipulation? The person that the widow or widow or needs to remarry needs to be a Christian. Because what is marriage? Till death do you part. So when one of the spouses dies the marriage has been naturally dissolved. The one union has been dissolved by death. And that's, there's permission for death to allow remarriage as long as they remarry in the Lord. Okay? But again, Paul says, I think it's happier for you to be single. But then it's funny how Paul ends it. What is the last thing he says? After he said all this, I too think I may have the Spirit of God. <laughs> it's kind of like he's... It's a little tongue-in-cheek. He's basically saying, okay, I've given you a lot of information, but I just want to remind you this is coming from the Holy Spirit. This is direction from the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I am to be listened to. I'm the founding pastor. And let's keep in context of Corinthians. What's, what's been on the busy issue? I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. I follow all these, all these super apostles. And Paul comes in and says, you know, I think I know what I'm talking about. Now, let's just review because let's just kind of bring the bottom line down into what this passage of Scripture in chapter 7 is all about. Paul advocates singleness and celibacy only if they have self-control. He urges husbands and wives to fulfill their obligation to sexually satisfy each other in the marriage. Divorcees and widows are better off if they don't remarry, but if they also, but if they also don't have sexual self-control, they should remarry. 
Paul is adamantly against divorce. He does allow the believer to accept divorce if the unbelieving spouse deserts or abandons. Everyone should be content in their, with their place in life in which God has called them. Virgins are betrothed or engaged. People should get married but realize that marriage brings troubles. He urges us not to make idols out of our marriages and families because in the end they will pass away. Single people have more time and freedom to devote to the Lord. Marriage vows are for a lifetime and are only ended by the death of one of the spouses and the widow is free to remarry. We got through chapter 7. That's a confusing chapter. Next week we talk about food sacrificed to idols, which may be a little easier, but do you guys have any questions about this passage of Scripture? Practically speaking, yes, Paula. Verse 37. No, I think what he's saying is, let me give you my personal opinion. I always think it's probably better to have a shorter engagement than a longer engagement. Why? There's more temptation the longer you draw it out to have sexual immorality. So I think what Paul's probably saying there is it's probably better to the person that you're betrothed to to, to get married sooner. No, I don't think you want to keep her hanging. No, keep her as your betrothed. I don't know if Paul would. Yeah, I think that I think that would argue against what Paul says about fleeing sexual immorality and self control and and lacking all that stuff. Again, it's confusing. I don't. Kind of clarifies it. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage does evil. Yeah. Yeah. I don't pretend to know everything that Paul's saying here. And so if somebody smarter than me knows what he's talking about, I'd sure appreciate your input. But um, I think it's important that he talks about marriage because in our do you, do you think in our culture there's a lot of confusion over marriage? What's one thing he didn't have to address? Gay marriage. Now, were there homosexuals during Paul's time? Yes. I mean, we looked at it in chapter 6. Were they getting married? No, not even in that culture. Here's the issue, guys. Let's take a diversion. Can we talk about gay marriage for just one minute? Okay. Um, home, people with homosexual tendencies, same-sex attraction, and those who are practicing homosexuals, they've been around forever, haven't they? I mean... Go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of homosexuality has been around forever, That's, and it's still a sin. What makes it crucial culturally and civilly is that you, you're starting now to have governments sanctioning officially sinful behavior as law. That takes it into a different category. Um, because what the government is doing in the past, they said, you can actually, you know, the government said, you have, in America, you're free to be a homosexual. But now they're saying, you're free to practice your homosexual by institutionalizing your relationship in a 
actual marriage that's recognized by the state. And if you don't think this is going to cause problems, you need to start reading about things about related to adoption. And you also need to read about things related now to polygamy in Utah. It's opening up the doors to anything goes. So who knows? I mean, I'm not a prophet, but let's say a father wants to marry his 12-year-old daughter. Who's to say that he can't do it? Because if you look at some of the wording in the Supreme Court's decisions, like the, the Defense of Marriage Act being overturned, they've basically opened the door for any expression of marriage to happen based upon the way they defined it. It's just to be a matter of time before the different advocacy groups come in. And then you've legitimized. Sin's always been sin, and you deal, God's going to deal with sinners. But when a nation or a country legitimizes it institutionally through their laws, then you see the wrath of God coming upon a nation because they have put their stamp of approval legally on something that's been sinful all these years. Now, I had a great discussion with my <coughs> seminary buddies back two weeks ago when I was out at Southern. Because one of the guys is going to be writing his project on how does the church culturally engage with the gospel, the homosexual marriage issue. And he was telling me, he says, you know, if back in the 70s and 80s, we would have fought harder on the whole issue of divorce, we probably wouldn't be where we are now because there's no legitimacy. Because they look at Christian marriages today and they say, well, you know, it's no different than it was you know, you're no different than the world, so what moral authority do you have as Christians to talk about marriage? When, And so his argument is we shouldn't pick on gay marriage. We should elevate what a biblical marriage is, and we failed to elevate biblical marriages in the eyes of the world. And if we would have done that 20, 30 years ago, we may be in a different place today. That's his thesis. That was pretty good. Brent. I personally believe that we majored on the minors in some because scripturally, there are the gray areas that we can throw in. But those aren't the majority of what you see. When you really look, the number, the percentage of divorces, even Christian divorces, is of the variety of we just don't love each other. Anymore. Right. It's not the <coughs> so called extreme or the Sure. Is. The exception clauses that, that Jesus and Paul and, gives. And when you look and you Facebook. There's been some studies that show, especially um, among younger guys, that what's happening a lot with Facebook is a lot of people are reconnecting with their high school sweethearts on Facebook. And um, I had a pastor friend who lost his church because he reconnected with his high school sweetheart on Facebook. And as he was out on a meeting somewhere across the country... She lived about two hours away, and he went and had lunch with her. Nothing necessarily happened, but there was the intention to reconnect with his Facebook. Then it was through Facebook, and, of course, his wife found out, and his church found out, and you know, and it was all because he reconnected on Facebook. And so I think you need to be real careful. That's, I think there's, there's dangers to social media, and there's good things to social media, just like anything. Um, one of my friends just sent me, I haven't looked at it yet, but it's, it's the seven challenges that pastors face with social media, like how it's made pastoring different. Think about it. I have people now that 
like if I didn't visit them in the hospital, they like, well, how come you didn't visit me in the hospital? Well, did you call the church to tell me I was in the hospital? No, it was on my Facebook page. Well, if you got seven, eight hundred friends, how am I supposed to look on Facebook all day to find out you're going to the hospital? Call the church office and let us know. But there's some people that just assume that you should pastor them through Facebook. And there's just this whole mentality that if you don't meet my needs on Facebook or you don't know what's going on in my life or you see things of people in church on Facebook and you're like, well, what, how do I address that? I mean, they're putting it out there for everybody to see on Facebook. Do I call them up and say, hey, you know, I saw on Facebook that you did this or, or, you know, and people vent on Facebook. They like vent on Facebook. And then there's been times I had to call up a church member. So I saw your Facebook post. What's going on here? Is there something I need to be concerned about as pastor? Yes, and then, okay, so there's some issues that I've got to deal with. But, they, I mean, Facebook or any social media, it, you, sometimes you don't use discretion. You just blurt out your feelings or your thoughts. And then once it's out there, it's out there. And so you just need to be real careful how you use it. So I don't put a lot of personal stuff on Facebook. I put more scripture and links to things that are going on in the world and stuff like that. And most people don't comment on that. But if I comment on that, like, I had cookies and cream ice cream or, or like something dumb. Then you get more comments from that. I'm like, I put this real deep theological thing out there hoping people will comment. And nobody says anything. But then I put something like, yeah, I went to, um, out to dinner with Don and we went to such and such and we did this. And like, oh, and all the cool comments. And so people just want the, people just want the social stuff. And I'm like, no, I want you guys to get the deep theology. And they don't care about it. They just care I had cookies and cream at some place. So anyway. Really? Are through e-harmony? Have it resulted in e-harmony? Yeah. And that's a... I'm not against it. I'm not necessarily... I'm not necessarily... I'm not against that. I mean, it's just... It's just... Speed dating? Speed dating! It's where you go... Do you know what speed dating... Yeah, you do. You go into a big room... You get five, three minutes. You go into a big room, and you sit at a table, and you're timed, and you, you interact, and then you switch through, and then by the end of the night, you figure out who it is you've connected with. But we only know about this because of Psych. Well, we've seen Psych. Have you guys ever watched Psych? You know, it was the, one of the first episodes. Yeah, like Don and I don't know anything about speed dating. We never. Yeah. Any other questions, guys? We, we, we're going to get out early tonight, but is there any questions? First Corinthians 7, um, not per se. I mean, there's a booklet that we go through that we talk about a lot of these issues. Um, and, and like my first meeting with a couple, we go over a lot of the preliminary finding out where they're at coming in because that's going to determine where we go with stuff because um, it was interesting. Last, the, what was it last year, maybe the year before, that was a big year for marriages, and almost everybody that I married were young couples that had never been married before and chose not to live together, which was unusual for. And I won't marry couples if they live together, um, or I, you know, and things like that. So um, I don't teach this per se, but a lot of the concepts we go over. But I could teach it in one setting. That's a long lot to t- to take in. I I just think. It'd be a little uncomfortable. You were uncomfortable in this setting. I can't imagine that. It's sometimes it's uncomfortable when you meet with that couple for the first time and you ask the questions, especially when you sit down as a, and say, "Okay, are you guys having sexual relationships?" And they have to tell their pastor where they're at. 
that's where it, but, but I mean, I got to ask the question. And I always tell them, I'm going to ask you a tough question. You probably know what, it's good, what it is. You know, I make it, are you guys having, you know, relationships? And the guy's like, what do you mean we have, are we having sex? You know, he doesn't quite understand what I'm getting at. <laughs> are you guys having intimate relationships? She's like, yeah, you know, anyway. <laughs> you mean, yeah. It is kind of uncomfortable, but yeah. it's part of being a pastor. You've got to deal with those things. So. All right, guys. Next week we get into Chapter 8. Um, why did we decide to do 1 Corinthians anyway? You guys want, didn't you guys, or is it my idea or your idea? Was it my idea? It was my idea. <laughs> I said all the other issues would come up in this one book, and they are. So it's good. We're covering all the gamut in this, in this book. So um, it's the most dysfunctional church in the Bible, so we might as well learn from all the, the stuff. So. I was just thinking, even though while we're here, it's like, really? We are dealing with this stuff, you know, you know, that they had the same issue back then, so it'd be very timely. Yeah. Cindy, you were going to say something. I mean, backing up a little bit, when you talked about marriage, when a government san- you know, when a government sanctions something and makes it into law, it, it really elevates and changes it. And that's true. Look at abortion. You know, mm-hmm. People have always, abortion has always been sure. Bad. But when our government said it's now a right, look at the impact. That's impacted marriages. That's sure. impacted, I mean, that's impacted our society on multiple levels and to the negative. Yeah. Um, and it's made us a throwaway society yeah. in so many ways. Yeah. And so, same thing. When we, when we change what we define as marriage and we make it law, it's taken it that further step. I mean, the government also stands before God. Right. And is responsible for the stances they take. Now, we come from, I mean, at this point, we're <laughs> rapidly a totally ungodly government. <laughs> and, and so they aren't recognizing that. Right. But that doesn't mean God says, well, I'll let that pass. Right. And I think more, I think, well, probably before then, but definitely has sped up since Roe versus Wade. Yeah. More and more, God has kind of said, okay, I'm going to let you guys have what you think you want. Right. You know what? It made me think about, this week I've been thinking about the pot issue. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's another issue. They have now legalized something that two months ago was not legal. Okay. How do I talk to kids now about this? Because the government has said it's okay. I have not seen one thing, and maybe somebody can correct me, but the Surgeon General, I don't even think, has made a comment about the effects of pot on your body, where cigarettes have it everywhere. But you're inhaling stuff into your lungs still. So how do I go, okay, this is Mm -hmm. not healthy for you, and your dad uses a crack pipe at home and it has pot in it. Kids talk about this stuff. I can't now say, no, this is wrong. Because right. the government, government has said, says no so what do I do here? <laughs> okay. Well, here's the, it's the same thing with all these other issues right. that are becoming so great. Well, and here's, hard to have conversations. And, and here's the thing, guys. We're going to see very quickly, very rapidly, that true, authentic, gospel-centered, biblical Christianity is going to be so weird and so out of the mainstream and so perceived as crazy that we really will be a holy minority and need to prepare for persecution. Um, we just need to be, be ready for that. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not one of those pessimistic pastors that thinks that, that things, to me, I think it's a greater opportunity for the gospel. Where there's more dark, the light can shine brighter. And we should not ever become defeatist or ever think that, because I'm reading a book, you guys remember the book of the insanity of God that I talked about a few years ago? He's come out with a new one, the insanity of obedience. 
And this book is the theology talking about how do we deal with persecution. And he, instead of giving the stories about persecuted countries, he's talking about how we as Americans get prepared for it. And it's like very, very step on your toes. Like you guys thought Radical by David Platt was like, this is like, I told Don, I said, this book's like on steroids compared to that. I was like, man, this chapter is going to make people mad. And I'm thinking, I don't know if people are ready for this. And if I was your pastor and not ready for it, I'm like, whether I'm going to let you guys read. But the whole point of that is that true, authentic Christianity is flourishing in nations where the gospel is shut out. And... um Maybe God has greater days. It may be harder, but it may be a greater, greater opportunity for the gospel to flourish. And so, an example of that. When I was in college, I went to Japan for a summer as a missionary. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I had more culture shock coming home than I did over there. Part of the reason was in Japan, back in those days, if you chose to be a Christian, it was a radical departure from the culture oh, yeah. around you. And yeah. it was very black and white. And when I came back, yeah. everything was this foggy gray yeah. here. It's a cultural People Christian. would call themselves Christians, and yet their stance wouldn't be. People would say, yeah, I mean, it never Yeah, happened. and in that book, he makes a distinction between what we call Christian, most other nations don't. The we what what when they when other Christians when other nations that are persecuted call a person Christian they say this is a baptized active believer that's sharing their faith that's truly dedicated to Christ and is intimately involved in the life of the church. We say, I mark Christian on a survey as far as what my religion is, but I have no I'm a nominal Christian. So. Well, one thing that we need to be prepared about, and nobody's talking about, everybody's talking about how we're going to fight the culture wars, but nobody's talked about how we're going to deal with pastors being in jail. Our church, I know she's thought about it because she's my wife, but how have we, have we as pastors sat together in a room and said, how are we going to lead our churches from jail? And our church is ready for jail, for us to be in jail, you know? I've got an internet footprint so, of everything I've said. It's on the internet. In my mind, how we are going to live, Because okay. <laughs> he will go. And we need to pray for the other pastors that we're praying that they will stand because they're going to be tempted to not. And then they're going to lead us to not as well. And so if he's going to go, that means the rest of us have to stand with him. Well, look at Paul. You know? Paul was in prison as a pastor writing back to these churches. And he said, "It's for look at read read first the Philippians. What does he say in Philippians? It's for my good that I'm in jail because the gospel's going forth in power in my chains." And I count it all joy. Yeah. Yeah. But part of that is to come back to the sovereignty of God, and I think especially in America, one of the things that we have done way too much is said, "Well, I'll bring my friends to church as pastor's job to share Christ." And, and that all my job ends with getting in the church doors and someone else takes care of it. Well, when your pastor is in jail, that makes that a little more difficult. Yeah. And uh, people are going to have to go, where's my stand? I mean, it's sort, of mm-hmm. like, it's sort of like when you raise your kids. Kids can be brought up in a Christian home, but when they go to college, they have to figure out, do mm-hmm. I believe with my parents? 
do I believe something else? What do I own? And it's the same thing. Right. What do you, you know, what is well, it's thing? interesting. One of the things that he says in this book, Insanity of Obedience, is that a lot of these closed countries, they don't rely on electronic media at all to communicate. They communicate the way the Bible did. They communicate through letters. So their pastors write letters back to the churches in secret code, like John did to Revelation, and they communicate either orally or through letters the way the early church did because nowadays there are people. I will tell you this. Mark Edlin told me this the other day. He's the director of prayer of evangelism. Or he's the director of our state convention, and I was in a meeting with him, and he used to be a missionary in, North Korea, or in Korea, and they were doing stuff in North Korea. Here's what happened. This was back in the 80s before Internet. A Korean man from San Francisco went over for six months kind of like to do a job project, but secretly he was a missionary in North Korea. He got arrested in Korea for being a missionary, and they asked, how in the world did you find out he was a Christian? Back at his home church, his name was put in the bulletin, and there was a spy in the church from North Korea that found it and communicated back, and it took it almost three months for him to get out of jail because they put his name in the bulletin. Nowadays, we have Internet, and, and like, you know, our missionaries have called me at times and said, is there anything, they do random Google searches to see what their name comes up with, to see if their name comes up with their name and missionary, because there are people in those close countries in their government that specifically look for missionaries, and they go to church websites, and they go to stuff like that to find people in their countries. That's one of the tools of Satan. To do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had one person come to me and said, "Are you prepared for spies in this church? There may even be spies right now that are preparing, that are are getting evidence on you, Pastor Sean, for the day. Just be prepared." And I said, "I don't don't know." Well, I'm like, (laughs) no, I'm like, you know. I told this, well, I told this person that they don't really need to spy on me. I write an article in the paper. I post stuff on Facebook. All of my sermons are online. It's not like I'm hiding anything. So, All right, well, guys, we need to, we need to go. So a great conversation tonight. It went from marriage to persecution, and that's a weird, that's a weird thing to think about. But uh, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for the great time we've had tonight. And, and Lord, this is, this is difficult stuff. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable at times, it's difficult, but Lord, it's in your word and we have to believe it. And so Lord, I just pray that, um, I guess my prayer for tonight is that we'd take Paul's admonition that we'd be content in wherever you've placed us, wherever you've called us in whatever station in life, whether single or married or divorced or wherever we're at, widowed, that we would be content in that and that our ultimate identity and our ultimate satisfaction would come through you, Jesus, not in what the world has to offer. And uh, we pray that we'd be ready. If persecution does come, that um, you would prepare us. And as you said in the the Gospels, when that time comes, you will give us words to say. And so we know the Holy Spirit will give us those words. So just equip us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.